0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News.
1: And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. In the next hour, President Trump will take questions from the White House. He's eager to project confidence that he is in control of this coronavirus crisis and that the country is ready to reopen. He's attempting this at the same time that it's not clear that he can even keep the coronavirus out of his own workplace. Three top health officials on the coronavirus task force, the top infectious disease expert, Dr. Fauci, as well as the Uh, Dr. Hahn, the head of the FDA, and Dr. Redfield, the head of the CDC. They are all in some state of self-quarantine right now after coming in contact with two White House staffers who have in recent days been infected with the virus and tested positive. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds also said that she will follow a modified quarantine after she visited the White House last week. It's difficult to see, but this is Vice President Pence arriving at the White House today. He was not wearing a mask. A spokesman for the vice president said Pence will not be in quarantine, despite the fact that a different spokesperson for the vice president, Katie Miller, is one of the two White House officials who tested positive for the virus. That's Miller in this photo you can see right now from Thursday. This is at a Virginia retirement home from before she tested positive. She is the only one uh, in the picture not wearing a mask. A source tells CNN that the president has been expressing worry that these infections inside his own White House undermine his message that the pandemic is under control and that states should reopen. Those White House cases are just a small part, of course, of the more than 1.3 million who have tested positive in this country. And at this hour, there are 79,894 deaths due to coronavirus in the United States. CNN's Caitlin Collins joins me live from the White House. And Caitlin, we're already beginning to see some changes at the White House today. What are you learning about the vice president's call with governors?
2: Yeah, so this is the only thing on the vice president's schedule today, of course, that comes after his office said he was not going to through quarantining and he's still here at work today. But typically these calls are done in a conference room. The other members of the task force usually come with him, including Dr. Burks. Several of those who you just pointed out are quarantining after coming into contact with his press secretary. But today we're told that on that call that the vice president was on the call via, via video. He was in a separate room. Dr. Burks was on the call, but she was also in a room by herself as well. And now while some few staffers came in during these calls into those rooms, we are told that they were not hanging out in there. They were wearing masks, the people that you saw entering the room, though the vice president wasn't. But Dr. Burks was wearing a mask. So it's no they're separating them they're in their own rooms one of them is wearing a mask one of them is not and that's notable already because that is not what they were doing just last week or the weeks earlier before that jake during these calls so you do get the sense that there is a heightened level of concern here at the white house now that two people who work very closely to the president and the vice president have now tested positive for coronavirus and one thing we should note: they're doing is contact tracing throughout the weekend trying to figure out all of the staffers that katie Miller came in contact with so they can figure out who could potentially have this, what they need to be looking for, because she was not only here at the White House in these coronavirus meetings, she also went to Camp David with the president the weekend before that. So there's a lot of concern, basically, about what that possible exposure could be.
1: And, Caitlin, there's this new video out showing food executives removing their masks uh, before a meeting with Vice President Pence. This is last week. Do we have any idea why they removed their rat- masks, why they believed it was safe?
2: Yeah, this was this roundtable the vice president did last Friday, hours after we found out that his, his press secretary had tested positive. And of course, they had to get a few staffers off his plane before he finished that trip in case they made contact with his press secretary. And here you can see the executives were all wearing masks before the vice president got there. Then you see that unidentified staffer come in. We can't hear what she says, but, Jake, she signals to them that it's OK for them to remove their mask, and then the vice president comes in and they have this roundtable with none of them wearing masks. Now, a source close to this said that that was because they were seated six feet apart and therefore, in accordance with CDC guidance, that they did not need to wear masks. Though you can't really tell how far apart those people on the sides are. You don't really get a good image of that from what the camera saw there. But it just goes to show, you know, the links that this staffer was going to, who was there, we should note, on behalf of the administration, basically telling these people who were already wearing masks that they didn't need to wear them.
1: All right, Kaylin Collins at the White House. Thanks so much. I want to bring in CNN chief political analyst Gloria Borger now and CNN political correspondent uh, Abby Phillip Abby, let me start with you. Sources tell CNN that the president has expressed frustration over the fact that two staffers in the White House contracted coronavirus. The president's concerned apparently that it undercuts his message about it being safe to reopen. What do you expect uh, President Trump will say at this briefing scheduled for four o'clock?
3: Well, Jake, this briefing is supposed to be about the issue of testing and the president has already made it clear that he doesn't think that some of these projections about how much testing needs to happen in this country on a daily basis uh, is really what needs to happen. He thinks uh, potentially that that the United States is already doing uh, pretty uh, well when it comes to testing. Uh, But I think one of the things that this incident in the White House really illustrates is that even in a place where testing is widespread and and happening on a really regular basis, there is still transmission happening uh, on the White House grounds. And he's going to have to answer some questions about how he gets the country to a place where people feel comfortable going back to work, going into stores, uh, being in indoor places with each other, uh, if testing is not more widely available. Uh, The U.S. has gotten a lot better about this, but clearly a lot more needs to happen. And I expect, as we often do, we'll hear a lot of happy talk from the president, uh, but there are a lot of serious answers that the public needs about how we can get to a better place so that we don't see, frankly, what we're already seeing happening uh, in the White House compound, in a place where people are getting tested on a weekly and a daily basis.
1: And Gloria, um, as of right now, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, the head of the CDC, Dr. Robert Redfield, and the head of the FDA, Dr. Stephen Hahn, they're all right now in some version of self-quarantine because of possible exposure to coronavirus at the White House. Uh, And yet still, President Trump refuses to follow the guidelines he's given to the rest of us. He doesn't wear a mask. He doesn't social distance. Why not set an example?
4: Well, because that's not the example he wants to set. The example he wants to set, and I think we're going to hear a lot of that later this afternoon, is everything's fine. We're going back to normal. Uh, things will be OK. He doesn't want to appear in a mask because he think that, thinks that public will say, well, wait a minute, if you're in a mask, why are things OK? And I think the problem that the president has been having is that what's going on in the White House contradicts that very message. I mean, he's been tweeting over the weekend, for example, about how Democrats want to drag out the reopening because of politics. Well, lots of governors want to drag out the reopening because they want to do it in an orderly way so that they don't endanger uh, people's lives. But that is not the message. The message is, Get back to normal. We have to reopen the country and everything needs to look normal at the White House. So you can know that it's normal in your community as well.
1: OK, but I mean, what about all the dead people? I mean, isn't well, that clear Well,
4: that's right. Of course. You don't, hear, things- you don't hear the president. Yeah, you don't hear the president talking about that a lot, Jake, do you? You don't. At the beginning of this, we heard the president talk about the terrible toll this has taken in the country for people who have gotten the virus and people who have died from the virus. But you're not hearing that a lot now.
1: Yeah. Abby, White House Economic Advisor, um, Senior Advisor Kevin Hassett told me yesterday that he knows he is putting himself at risk by continuing to go into the White House to work. Take a listen. I knew when I was going back in that I would be taking risks, that, that you know, I'd be safer sitting at home, home at my house. That going into a West Wing, that even with all the testing of the world and the best uh, medical team on Earth, is a relatively cramped place. And Abby, this is something that I think many people at home might not understand. You know it because you covered the White House. Explain to our viewers just how tight the working conditions are inside the West Wing and theoretically how quickly a case would be able to spread.
3: Yeah, I mean, relatively cramped space is really an understatement for what the West Wing is. I mean, the White House is a, a large compound, but the West Wing is very small. You have a lot of people working in a small, a very s- small place. The hallways are tight. People are sharing offices. And then on top of that, you had a White House where things were basically business as usual. It's been really, uh, you know, surprising for me to see uh, the White House continuing to insist on having in-person meetings where people are coming from all over the country to sit in uh, the Oval Office and in other places with the president, even while the rest of the country has moved largely to a teleworking situation where people are conducting me- meetings virtually. There's been a sense that almost nothing has changed in terms of the day-to-day in the White House, and when you have so many people working uh, working in the, in those tight corners, uh, hallways where you know two people can't walk past in the same hallway without uh, brushing shoulders, that is really a recipe for the kind of transmission that uh, is really problematic. Uh, And and if you were a staffer working in that White House, and if you, for example, like some staffers do, are sitting basically shoulder to shoulder with your colleagues in these kind of open floor plan office spaces, it is impossible to socially distance in those kinds of environments, especially if people are not wearing masks. And we know now that is starting to change. But this has been going on for weeks now where the White House has been operating basically with business as usual. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing them suddenly scrambling to control an outbreak in uh, in that compound.
1: And we're just getting word now that there's a new memo that went out to White House staffers instructing them to wear masks when they go into the White House. And, Gloria, this is the rub. Uh, They do at the White House surveillance testing. They do contact tracing. They do what the health experts say needs to be done all over the country. And even they at the White House can't keep this from spreading inside. What luck uh, what what kind of luck are the rest of us going to have when we all go back to work?
4: Right, and that's and and that's the lesson. I mean, you look at this and you say, "Wait a minute! They have testing available to them that we don't have available to us. That most people in the country do- don't, and yet they are not immune from this virus spreading." And what, as we look at the White uh, look at the White House, we have to say, "Wait a minute! This can spread no matter what, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter how many times you've been tested. If you're tested the day after." One may be a negative. Another one might be a positive. And yet, on the other hand, you have the president coming out and saying, let's reopen the country. We have enough tests. The question is, do we have enough tests? Do the governors believe they have enough tests? And in most cases, the answer is absolutely not.
1: All right, Gloria and Abby, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Stay with us. We're going to check back with you uh, after President Trump speaks. Coming up, uh, there's a new mystery illness hitting children. It could be linked to the coronavirus. We're going to talk to a health expert about that, plus an outbreak of coronavirus, all tying back to a nightclub in one city after the nightclubs attempted to reopen. That story's ahead. Stay with us. Tragically, even more children are getting sick from a mystery illness that could be connected to coronavirus. Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York says that his state alone is up to at least 93 cases and at least three children in New York have died with possible other cases across the country. I want to bring in Dr. Stephen Kearney. He's chief of pediatric critical care medicine at New York Presbyterian Hospital. He oversaw the treatment of two dozen of these patients. Dr. Kearney, thanks so much. For joining us for this awful subject. Certainly when you look at the number of cases, it appeared children were getting sick from coronavirus in much lower numbers, but, but could it be that it's just presenting as just a different kind of illness?
5: Well, what we think is happening is that you're exactly right. Certainly the acute coronavirus infection um, did does affect children much less, meaning Unless they have really serious underlying medical conditions, they don't seem to get really sick from it. What we're seeing now is something um, not in kids with uh, serious underlying medical conditions, but really um, kids without a lot of issues, but have been exposed to the coronavirus sometime in the past. We think sometime somewhere between three and six weeks uh, previous to when they're presenting now.
1: And your hospital's seen about two dozen of, of these children with this mysterious illness. You call it pediatric multi-system inflammatory syndrome. How did you make the connection to the coronavirus?
5: Yeah, and I apologize for the name. We don't call it that, but that seems to be what people have adopted. What we first started seeing about two weeks ago were children who came in in what we called a generalized inflammatory state that was uh, manifest by high fever, and kind of a diffuse body rash, and they appeared ill. And oftentimes, they would have cracked lips and uh, injection of the eyes, really high heart rates, and low blood pressure. And we'd have to bring them into the ICU, um, give them IV fluids, give them medications to help their heart rate uh, or their heart work better, um, and then see how they're recovered. How we made the association with coronavirus was that initially um, – And even now, less than half the kids we see with this are testing positive for the coronavirus itself, meaning the PCR test that detects RNA from the virus is oftentimes negative. But now that we can do rapid antibody testing, we know that all of the children that we've seen have been exposed to the coronavirus. It's just sometime after they've been Mm. acutely infected.
1: A new study out today found that 48 children uh, with COVID-19 Uh, who had been admitted to pediatric intensive care units, 23% of them uh, had a failure of two or more organ systems, the most common one uh, being uh, the lung system. Have you seen similar findings in children uh, with this illness?
5: So what we're not seeing is a lot of lung disease. So with the acute COVID infection, particularly in in adults, pneumonia, and something we call ARDS, bad respiratory failure, is what seems to be the the cause of them going into the hospital and and what they typically die from. In children, it seems to be different, meaning it's more of a systemic problem that is a vasculitis, an inflammation of the blood vessels, and in turn, affects how well their heart functions. Yes, all organ systems can be involved, and we've seen many of them, but typically not the lungs.
1: Is there evidence coronavirus spread in the same households of, of the children with this mysterious illness?
5: Yes, there is, meaning that typically when you get a history from the family, somebody either had suspected or or confirmed coronavirus infection, oftentimes a parent or an older adult in the household, you know, several weeks beforehand. What we're not seeing is that this this manifestation of coronavirus it doesn't seem to be appearing in siblings so that brothers and sisters aren't getting it, It maybe one kid out of the family. Uh, We still believe, even though we've seen, you know, two or three dozen cases at our hospital, we still think given the number of children who have been exposed to coronavirus, it really remains a rare complication.
1: So this illness seems to be affecting mostly children under the age of five. Why do you think that is? Well, that's not been
5: our experience. So we've really seen children of all ages from, yeah, some under five, but up into their teens.
1: Okay, Dr. Stephen Kearney, thank you so much. Best of luck battling this cruel new twist on this disease. A new major warning from the World Health Organization calling one coronavirus mitigation theory dangerous. That's next. A dramatic warning from the World Health Organization today. The concept of herd immunity, the World Health Organization says, is, quote, dangerous. And the organization warns the recovery for many patients can be a very, very long and painful road. I want to bring in CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth, the idea of herd immunity is a large portion of the population gets infected, and that creates a degree of immunity in the future. What is the concern from the WHO?
6: You know, herd immunity in and of itself, Jake, is a good thing if you achieve it with a vaccine. That's what we've done, for example, with measles in this country. We have herd immunity because most of us have either had measles or were vaccinated against it. But if you don't have a vaccine, which, of course, is the case with COVID-19, the only way to get herd immunity is for the vast majority of the population to get infected, which means that you are going to have many, many deaths. So what what the WHO is trying to say is, don't think, oh, we'll just get let everyone get infected. It'll be great. Then we'll have herd immunity. You will also have many, many dead people. And they said, this is not the way to do it. This is the WHO's way of saying, keep doing all of these mitigation, all of these stay-at-home measures so that we can hold out until we have a vaccine or at least better treatments.
1: And Elizabeth, uh, the World Health Organization also warned about these long term issues for recovering patients. Uh, Tell us more about that.
6: Right, I think sometimes people think when you get over an infection and you get, dis- you know, let's say you've been in the hospital, you're discharged, you sort of, you know, waltz out of there and you're fine. They are finding that this is not the case with this virus. What they're finding is that people have these lingering heart problems, they have lingering respiratory problems. I know that I've spoken with people who have been recovering for a month or two from this virus, and they are still very weak, finding it difficult, for example, just to get up a flight of stairs. This is a very serious infection, and even. Even once you're out of the hospital, even once you're no longer technically infected, you can still feel quite ill.
1: And the WHO also said there's an alarming number of healthcare care workers who have become infected and that most of the world remains susceptible to this virus.
6: Right. Most of, Sometimes people think, oh, this has been going on for a while. There must be many people who've had this. Not really. When they look for people who've been infected and they can check their uh, blood for antibodies, they're finding that really only a very, very small percentage of the population has been infected. And that is why we are nowhere near herd immunity. Also, very striking how many healthcare workers all around the world have become infected. Part of the problem is that there hasn't been enough protective gear, at least in the United States. That situation is improving. But really, these Healthcare workers are heroes. They are risking their life when they take care of coronavirus patients.
1: All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. The South Dakota governor is threatening legal action against two Native American tribes over COVID checkpoints that the tribes have set up on Sioux land. Governor Kristi Noem ordered that the checkpoints be removed, but the leaders uh, of the Cheyenne River Sioux tribe are fighting back, saying that the checkpoints are are essential to saving lives as the Native American community across this nation gets ravaged by the pandemic. CNN's Sarah Seidner uh, joins me now. And Sarah, the governor's argument boils down uh, to traffic concerns, right?
7: traffic concerns and whether supplies, for example, can get through, medical personnel can get through. But the tribe has said, of course, we are going to let trucks through. We've been watching them just wave people through. Uh, but for the most part, what happens is someone pulls up to this checkpoint. Uh, a, a couple of people from the, from the nation go up to them and they say, you know, where have you been? They ask for their information. They ask whether or not they have some symptoms, whether they have fever. Uh, and it's, this is really about contact tracing, Jake, because what they don't want to happen is that they have an explosion of cases in and on the reservation. Why is that? For about 12,000 residents here, there are only eight available hospital beds at the hospital here and there is no ICU. So the closest ICU, the closest hospital that has all of the things you would need for someone with a severe case of COVID-19 is about three hours away. We talked to the chairman uh, of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe and he told (laughs) us, look, we are in dire straits if the if this COVID-19 gets into our community and starts spreading fast.
5: On behalf of our people, we have to maintain them checkpoints and, and continue to do
7: the things that we're doing until it's safe. You're going to keep those checkpoints? Yes. No matter what the governor or state tries to do? No matter what. No matter what, he says, even if they're taken to court or something more, he says he and the Oglala tribe are going to stand firm on this because they feel that they are simply protecting their people. And they don't expect that if they do get hit, that they're going to get a whole lot of help from anywhere else either, Jake.
1: And Sarah, this battle's ramping up as we're learning just how badly the pandemic is hitting Native American tribes across the country.
7: Yeah, here it's interesting. They only had one case. They were able to track it, by the way, right here at a checkpoint. But, and you're seeing a checkpoint in action right behind me, but the Navajo Nation having a much more difficult time. Uh, They are really being hit hard. They have one of the highest cases per capita in the nation more than many other states and to deal with this sort of thing when you don't have the resources we've seen what has happened for example in new york imagine a scenario similar to that in a place where you have very few resources you just simply get overwhelmed very quickly Uh, doctors without borders are now going into the navajo nation trying to help them out jake
1: all right, Sarah Seidner in South Dakota. Thank you so much. And we should note, we did ask South Dakota Governor Nome to come on our air uh, to discuss this issue. Uh, her office did not respond to our w- request. You may have seen this image after it went viral over the weekend. It's a United Airlines flight packed with passengers. The company says the jet was more full because of the volunteer medical staff on board. It's just one example of crowded gatherings happening as the nation begins to reopen. CNN's Erica Hill is in the virus epicenter in New York City. And Eric, Erica, there are still 20,000 new cases of coronavirus a day in the United States.
8: Yeah, and that's what we keep hearing from officials, and especially here in New York as we hear daily from Governor Andrew Cuomo, a reminder that while numbers may be going down and while phased reopening is beginning across the country and even soon here in New York state, the virus is not gone. The virus dictates the timeline and the virus will be here for some time. You mentioned that United flight, that packed United flight, Dr. Ethan Weiss posting a picture. Uh, he was one of a number of healthcare professionals who were returning to California. He had been volunteering at hospitals here in New York and was seemingly troubled when he saw how many people were on that flight, noting people were scared and shocked. United, in a statement, said in response, they've overhauled the cleaning and safety procedures and implemented a new boarding and deplaning process to promote social distancing, noting specifically that that flight to San Francisco, as you pointed out, had an additional 25 medical professionals on board who were flying for free to volunteer for their time in New York. Uh, The doctor did thank United for what it was doing for, uh, for the folks on board and for flying health professionals across the country, but also said he didn't plan to be flying again anytime soon.
1: And, Erica, the death toll in the United States in the next few minutes is going to surpass 80,000. One in three of those deaths is a nursing home resident or worker, according to a New York Times analysis.
8: Yeah, that's right. The New York Times crunched their own database of numbers, and that's what they found. In fact, they found that while uh, I believe it's 11 percent of the cases – I'm just checking my numbers to make sure I have this correct – um, in the country have happened in long-term care facilities as you point out it's one in three of the deaths and we saw this from the very beginning when we saw that cluster outside of seattle and kirkland washington at the life care center facility there there have been issues at nursing homes across the country frankly in new jersey the governor brought the national guard into some veterans homes there issues at veterans homes in massachusetts as well as concern grows about some of the most vulnerable people uh, in our communities jake
1: and Erica, uh, the New York New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said today that the state can, quote, intelligently prepare for reopening uh, coming up on Friday. Uh, what does he say that will, should look like?
8: So it will actually, for, for parts of the state, parts of this state will be able to open everything on Friday. So don't get too excited, but let me just let you know what the, the risks of those are. Low-risk businesses and recreational activities. So starting Friday, May 15th, landscaping, uh, gardening, and low-risk recreational activities like tennis and drive-in movie theaters okay across the country. But those, uh, but only certain regions will be able to open more fully. So there are three upstate that can. They will be allowed to open certain businesses like construction, manufacturing, curbside retail. Uh, and there are two other regions, the governor says, that have met six of his seven metrics. And they could be ready, Jake, as well, by the end of the week. As for any steps beyond that, he said all of that will depend on what happens once the phased reopening begins in each region. Basically, it is a step-by-step approach because no one wants to go backward, Jake.
1: All right, Erica Hill in New York, thank you so much. Coming up, it was billed as desperately needed help for small businesses, but many businesses are now calling it a nightmare. We'll explain why next. Small businesses are complaining that there is a major problem with the big rescue package. Seventy five percent of the money given out has to go to payroll. But some small business owners want the money to pay bills. The Treasury secretary said it would be up to Congress to change that rule.
0: They do know how to execute on it and it's working great. If Congress wants to change that rule, uh, I'm happy to work with Congress if there's bipartisan support to do
1: that. CNN's Phil Mattingly talked to some small business owners about the strings attached to this PPP money uh, and how it makes it hard to to use. Phil?
9: The government's small business rescue program was designed as a dream lifeline for business owners.
1: I actually think they did the right thing.
9: But for some ravaged by the pandemic, like Lori Hamill, who owns a series of health clubs in Massachusetts and Utah, it has become a nightmare.
1: We're in a situation where all of a sudden we find out that that we don't have um, the ability to spend 75% of what we got from the PPP.
9: After a rocky rollout, the program has kicked into gear. More than 4.2 million loans, more than $500 billion to save small businesses, all of which can be forgiven if certain rules are followed. But those rules, that 75% of the funds must be used on payroll, 25% for things like rent and utilities, and all within eight weeks, have become a dramatic problem with businesses like Hamill's still unable to open on state's orders and many of their furloughed workers making more money from enhanced unemployment insurance.
1: I'm not going to be paying all these people money for not coming to work. And not only because it doesn't help them out, because if the business isn't around, they're not helped.
9: And the business saving program has created yet another desperate moment. The SBA's own inspector general said, quote, tens of thousands of borrowers won't be able to have their loans forgiven due to the rules. Basically, how I describe it to people is it's, it's this gigantic pothole and it's, it's dark. And so you have no idea how deep it or how long it is. And the, you need to have something to fill that pothole. Mark Harmon, the president of Stan's Food Service, a distributor based in South Bend, Indiana, has watched not just his business, but the restaurants it serves struggle with the program's rules. And They're all decimated. They seriously are decimated. And the, and the PPP loan, while well, its intent was, I think, good, it's it's not practical for what they do. Harmon contacted Indiana Senator Todd Young with his concerns. And Young, a Republican, along with Democratic Senator Michael Bennett, have drafted proposals to try and address the issues. The question now, is it too late? What has happened with this, this kind of uh, uh, the pandemic, essentially, it's catastrophic what it's doing to our industry. And it's going to be really, really hard to come back from if we're not saved. Now, Jake, the issue here is a couple pieces. Well, these small businesses want the money. They want to be able to utilize the money. But with their employees right now often doing better with unemployment insurance, they want to wait until they can at least open up to use that money. And given the timeline is only eight weeks with which they can use it, they want that expanded. They also want the opportunity to use the money for things besides payroll. Now, as Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said earlier today, The point of this program was to pay employees, to keep employees on payroll. But when you talk to small business owners, one of the things they say is if they're still shut down, if they can't open the doors, and if their employees are getting money from unemployment uh, benefits, the key is to ensure that when they can open up, there is a business to actually exist to pay employees. That's what they're working on right now. That's what they're lobbying Congress to try and do. And there is bipartisan support for those fixes. The big question right now, Jake... Will they be able to move anything on Capitol Hill anytime soon to address those issues?
1: All right, Phil Mattingly, thank you so much. Tickets for Shanghai Disneyland completely sold out today after the park reopened for the first time in almost four months. CNN is going to go live to that theme park next. In our world leads, schools across parts of Europe are beginning to reopen. In Germany, the Netherlands, Switzerland and Denmark, students are returning to class after months at home. And in the UK, Prime Minister Boris Johnson laid out a roadmap to reopening, which includes uh, a 14-day quarantine for visitors to the UK, allowing British people to spend more time outdoors and stiffer fines for those who break the rules. Johnson was also criticized by some lawmakers who believe he is sending confusing messages Shanghai's Disneyland is open today. Tickets have sold out, but we should point out the park is is limiting visitors, so it's only at about 30% capacity. Normally, the park can hold 80,000 visitors. CNN's David Culver is live for us in Shanghai at the theme park. David, some smaller crowds, uh, obviously. What else is different?
10: Well, it's interesting, Jake, how they're selling these tickets. They're doing it through an online reservation system. So essentially, you have to book a certain time when you're going to show up so they don't have everyone coming together at once at the front gate to go in. And they have that 30 percent cap. That's the government regulation here. But we're hearing from Disney the numbers are far fewer than that, that they're allowing the number of guests to come in. And that is so that they're trying to almost try it out over the next several days to see with a fewer number. Uh, how they can actually maintain the social distancing. And they're doing it through markings everywhere you go in the park. i got to tell you, we walked around and they have these yellow tapings all over the place that essentially suggest where you can stand. They'll have cast members constantly coaching people, educating them essentially to keep that distance. You go to one of the performances, they have a yellow tape box where you and your family can sit. But then they have a space next year that's going to be completely empty. Same with the restaurants, same with the rides. Essentially, every other row is blocked off. That's why they have to keep the numbers so low. They say, Disney, that is, that over the next several days, they're completely sold out. But again, those numbers, as far as we could tell, are going to be far fewer than the 30% or the 24,000 roughly that they anticipate
1: uh, will be the maximum for the foreseeable future, Jake. All right, David Culver, Culver at Shanghai at Disneyland, thanks so much. South Korea has largely been praised for its response to coronavirus, but now uh, officials there are increasingly concerned about a new cluster of cases, the highest number of new infections in about a, a month in that country. The World Health Organization warns that there have been spikes in several countries, including South Korea, where they've lifted restrictions. An example of the challenges... For all of us as we move forward, CNN's Paula Hancock joins us from Seoul. And Paula, this cluster seems to be linked to a nightclub.
11: That's right, Jake. Yes, this is uh, all linked to one 29-year-old man who uh, visited a number of nightclubs uh, in the nightclub district here in Seoul back on May 2nd. So he visited a number of them. He then tested positive. And since that time, officials say that at least 86 other people have tested positive as well, all linked to this one incident. Now we understand that they are trying to uh, narrow down exactly who had been in that area uh, over a two week period. They've got 5,500 people that they are trying to speak to that they want to test. They say they've tested more than 3,000 already in a a desperate attempt to try and contain this outbreak because just a few days ago, this country was having zero local transmission, so it's very different now. It's already had a knock-on effect. Schools were supposed to be reopening in this country from Wednesday. It was going to be year three of high school and then a phased reintroduction of other grades. That's now being pushed back a week. And potentially that could be pushed back uh, even further. We've heard from the Seoul city mayor. He said that the next two to three days are going to be critical in order to try and, uh, uh, and, and contain this outbreak. And the way that South Korea does that is that they use credit card record usage. They use police cooperation. They use mobile phone data to try and make sure they can pinpoint everyone who was in that area. Jake.
1: All right, Paula, thank you so much. Coming up in minutes, President Trump is going to hold a press conference at the White House. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is CNN
0: Breaking News.
1: Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. At any moment, we expect President Trump to hold a press conference in the Rose Garden of the White House as the United States nears yet another grim Milestone, we are almost at 80,000 deaths from coronavirus in the U.S., 79,935 to be precise. A month ago at this hour, the death toll had just surpassed 20,000. Now we're almost 60,000 beyond that. And now coronavirus has actually reached inside the White House with two staffers at least infected, three top health officials on the coronavirus task force are self-quarantining in in some manner some manner, all undercutting the president's message that it's time to reopen the nation and this virus uh, can be controlled. CNN's Caitlin Collins joins me now live from the White House. And Caitlin's White House staffers have just been told that they need to wear masks when entering uh, the West Wing. Uh, They have not been told that until now?
2: Yeah, Jake, they're just now getting this guidance about a month after the CDC issued its own guidance about people wearing uh, face coverings when they're in public. And now this email that they got from the White House Management Office says that they need to be wearing masks when they are entering the West Wing. They say that if they are in the West Wing at their desk, they do not have to wear a face covering as long as they are appropriately social distance from their colleagues. But this is notable, given that just last week, this was not at all the guidance. And actually, our reporting was that most people inside the West Wing were not wearing masks. And of course, this all comes on the heels of two staffers testing positive inside the White House, which has now set up a hunt to try to make sure that outbreak doesn't spread any further. The White House is now scrambling to contain a coronavirus outbreak within its own walls. Two people who work closely with President Trump and Vice President Pence have been infected, sending officials rushing to do contact tracing amid concerns about further exposure inside the West Wing.
1: It is scary to go to work. You've been in the West Wing. You know, it's a, it's a small, crowded place.
2: A Saturday meeting with top military officials at Camp David was called off in part because of the concerns about the outbreak, leading Trump to meet we with the, the Joint very Chiefs very of Staff at the White the House instead. Though his press secretary was one of the two officials who tested positive last week, Vice President Pence says he won't quarantine and was seen arriving at work today. However, several officials who did have contact with his press secretary are now quarantining. After testing negative, the FDA commissioner and the CDC director both announced they'll quarantine for two weeks in accordance with CDC guidelines. Dr. Anthony Fauci began a modified quarantine Sunday after what he described as low-risk contact with Miller. And today, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds announced she's also going into a modified quarantine after coming into indirect contact with Miller. As you know, last Wednesday, uh, I was at the White House. Reynolds later tested negative, but said she's still concerned about possible exposure. Out of an abundance of caution, I will follow a modified quarantine plan. Vice President Pence visited her state on Friday where he attended a food supply roundtable. A video of that event shows that the food executives he met with were all wearing masks before he arrived. But then an unidentified staffer there on the administration's behalf signals for them to remove their mask. Now, Jake, we talked to the White House about this video. They said that the reason she was indicating they could remove their mask is because they were going to be socially distanced, though she didn't explicitly say that they had to remove them just if they felt comfortable doing so. And we should know uh, more changes are happening here at the White House. We saw Dr. Burks, of course, the White House coordinator, arriving earlier today. She is not self-quarantining, but she was wearing a mask as she entered the White House grounds, as you can see in this video that we captured from this morning.
1: All right, Kalen Collins, thank you so much. Uh, Joining me now, uh, while we wait for President Trump to to come out and begin his press conference, uh, let's bring in CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And Sanjay, the president tweeted today, quote, coronavirus numbers are looking much better, going down almost everywhere, big progress being made. Um, So I want to talk to you about the factualness of this claim. Uh, It looks as though numbers are going down, Uh, in at least 16 states, which of course is great news, uh, but the numbers are holding steady or rising in 34 states. Uh, Give us a sense of where you think we are in this current outbreak.
12: Well, Jake, I think we're still in in the early days. I mean, we're going to see these ups and downs sort of trends a bit like this. Um, But, uh, you know, there's two things. One is that Overall, I think we have to look at sort of where we are as a country, where we're headed and take some cues from what's happened in other places around the world. Also, you know, I keep going back to these gating criteria, Jake. I think we have the map, by the way, of what where these places are going up, because it does sort of make a difference, uh, you know, in your own state versus other states. You can see uh, how the numbers are sort of doing. But, but Jake, the, these gating criteria, we had 14 days where we wanted to see downward trends uh, before you started thinking about reopening. 14 days. Uh, that's a significant trend. 14 days of downward trends in new cases. 14 days in downward trends of symptoms that are associated with this. And we haven't seen that. I mean, it seems like that's just sort of been abandoned here. So we do see the, the overall uh, improvement in some states, the plateauing perhaps in other states, the continued increase in, in other states still. Oh, I think the big question is when do we as a country start to see the 14-day downward trend to make the case that we can more safely reopen?
1: And let's talk about um, the procedures that they're going through at, at the White House itself. Uh, Vice President Pence, we're told he's not self-quarantining, even though his own press secretary, uh, Katie Miller, has t- tested positive. Do you think he should be?
12: Well, you know, I, it, it's funny. I've talked to my sources at the White House today and and about Vice President Pence and Ambassador Burks. And, you know, one, one thing I'll say is that you know, you have the top infectious disease doctor in, in the country who is self-quarantining. You have the head of the CDC who is self-quarantining. You have the head, head of the FDA that is self-quarantining. Um, so, you know, that, that, that should send a message to people about what the, the right thing to do in this situation is. Well, my sources inside the White House tell me is that when it comes to Vice President Pence, Ambassador Burks, I mean, the balance is that they are running the coronavirus task force. Ambassador Burks is essentially in charge of that. Um, uh, Tony Fauci, for example, is considered an advisor to that. And they're drawing a distinction there, saying she still needs to be in the White House doing these types of meetings and things like that. They've, you know, if they were to follow the guidelines, and the guidelines are not, you know, equivocal on this, they should be self-quarantining. But I think these are the sorts of decision, decision matrix that's probably going to happen, you know, in places like the White House and, frankly, in other places all over the country.
1: Uh, Although, just to point out, I think Dr. Fauci uh, is at the White House today, and he did tell me when he described the self-quarantining that he would be willing to go to the White House if they wanted him to go there, and he would be willing to go to NIH because his offices are basically empty anyway. So um, you and I have both been to the White House. Uh, I worked there uh, when I covered Obama. Um, The spaces are very cramped. People work on top of each other, not just in the press area, all over the entire building, with the exception of the Oval Office. Do you expect more people will likely test positive in the White House?
12: Uh, unfortunately, yes, uh, Jake. I mean, you know, the the virus is in the White House now. You know, we, we, we know that. People have been diagnosed there. Uh, as you do more testing uh, or if people develop symptoms, you know, you're probably going to see more cases. I mean, that that that's the concern. It is a it is a, a tough place to maintain physical distance, as you point out. And even, you know, up until recently, people uh, not wearing masks really up until today, I guess people still very close to each other. We've watched a lot of these press briefings where people are close to each other. And when I'm looking at that, I'm, you know, people can't imagine a little virus sort of moving around person to person. But that's what i see that's what a lot of infectious disease doctors see in their minds uh when they see that so um the, the, i guess the good news is the majority of people still jake um who contract this virus may not have much in the way of symptoms you know so that's the good news but the idea that more people will test positive i think is is inevitable at this point
1: uh the white house uh just announced that that uh every staffer who comes in needs to wear a mask they have said that the people who are around president trump are wearing masks. Is that enough protection?
12: It's, it's a, a, a good step. It's the best, you know, I think that, uh, you know, people can really do at this point besides maintaining the physical distance and quarantining themselves if they've had a known exposure. Jake, you know, last week we were talking about this and we said it's going to seem like an obvious decision that people should wear masks around the president, around the vice president, around all the principals. It's almost like you think about the secret service, you know, and it just struck me. And we'll look back on this time over the last few months and say, you know, we, we knew things way ahead of when they were implemented, Uh, you know, when it comes to the White House, when it comes to a lot of things in this country. We know where this is headed. We knew that people were going to have to physically distance, people were going to have to stay at home. We knew that far before it actually got implemented. We knew people in settings where you could not physically distance would need to wear masks in order to prevent Mm -hmm. the spread. Like when you see those uh, images of Ambassador Burks going in with a mask on, the primary reason that she's wearing that mask. It's to limit her spreading the virus if she has it, you know. So that, right. that's that's the important right. thing and so that you're decreasing the amount of virus in the environment.
1: And we're seeing, Sanjay, a case study. I mean, the White House engages in surveillance testing, which is just random testing of individuals at the White House. Uh, that's how they found out that some of the people had it. They're engaging in contact tracing, figuring out uh, who that people the people who have tested positive have come in contact with. And there is this robust testing program inside the White House, but the president keeps downplaying the need... For a nationwide uh, testing program like that, so that your children or my children or people who want to go to work are able to also keep hold of who has the virus. Take a listen to White House Senior Advisor Kevin Hassett yesterday on State of the Union. Why not? Why not implement a nationwide aggressive testing and contact tracing system? What's the downside? No, there is no downside. In fact, we should use every single test that we can generate. And that's something that we're working overtime on ramping up uh, testing. But Sanjay, there's no downside, uh, Mr. Hassett says, but they're not doing it. They're not invoking the Defense Production Act to get all the reagents and the swabs. and the, I mean, I, it's just one of the most bizarre things about this entire pandemic.
12: Yeah, it, re- it really is, Jake. I mean, it was, it was a good interview. I watched that interview, and, you know, he, I think he was being honest. I mean, look, we, you see what's happening inside the White House. They're testing. Some people are being tested every day. They recognize the value of testing in terms of trying to contain this at the White House, trying to contact Trace, do all the things to contain this. That's a microcosm of of larger institutions, a microcosm of cities and states and even the whole country. I mean, that's what needs to be done. And yeah, why why haven't we solved this problem so many months into it? We're one of the greatest countries on the planet. We solve really, really hard problems. And yet Swabs? Why don't we 3D print swabs? Why don't we create more of these reagents? I realize that everybody on the planet wanted the same things, but, you know, this was there's going to be big problems that we have to solve, like major sort of societal issues around this. Who gets the vaccine? When do they get the vaccine? How do you pay for it? How long are people going to need to how many times are they going to need to receive the shot? Swabs and reagents in order to get the country reopened. That's a solvable problem. And we're seeing it, you know, at the White House and in a sort of small, small picture. That's what needs to be applied to the country. Everybody knows this. It's been talked about for months now.
1: And what we're hearing from the White House essentially is testing for me, but not for thee. Uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate it. Be, be sure to yeah. listen to Sanjay's daily podcast, Coronavirus Fact versus Fiction, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're still waiting for President Trump to come out to the Rose Garden to begin a press conference. We're going to bring that to you live uh, coming up. Also, more images of crowded spots in the U.S. as the nation begins to try to reopen amidst this economic devastation. Uh, the shocking scenes ahead. Stay with us.